Good morning. Today's headlines. Hunter Biden's lawyers say U.S. prosecutors reneged on a plea deal and a deadline looms for an update on the status of his tax crimes case. And we bring you election analysis, a live discussion on how the appointment of a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden may affect his father's campaign. GOP presidential hopefuls campaigned at Iowa State Fair over the weekend. Governor Kim Reynolds held fairside chats with some of the candidates. Rescue efforts continue in the devastating aftermath of the Maui wildfires that destroyed most of the town Lahaina last week. The death toll now stands at over 90 people, but the figure is expected to rise drastically. Abuse of power allegations and First Amendment questions after Kansas police raid a small town newspaper. We have the details. Officials in California recently announced the largest ever drug bust involving illegal marijuana cultivation. We spoke with a local sheriff. And don't go on vacation stuck with a cold. We speak to a medical professional on why summer colds are a thing and get some natural remedies. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, August 14th. And you know, Evelyn, regarding the news of the special counsel appointment into the Hunter Biden probe, the real question is, will David Weiss follow the Hunter money trail, even if it leads to other members of the Biden family? Well, yeah, I think that's not really clear, though, because he's not exactly independent, right? He still has to report to A.G. Garland. Yeah, that is a good point. And, you know, also, Weiss has to realize that if he does follow the Hunter mining trail, he has to be the target of any media that don't agree with that pursuit. Good point. Yes. And we're starting off today with the top news, which centers around this case. Hunter Biden's lawyers say U.S. prosecutors reneged on a plea deal that would have resolved his tax and firearms charges. That was in a late court filing yesterday. A U.S. district judge rejected the proposed deal last month. She raised concerns about its legality and the scope of immunity it offered. Delaware federal prosecutors said Friday that Hunter Biden may be headed for a criminal trial after the plea negotiations broke down and that more charges could be coming as their probe continues. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed U.S. Attorney David Weiss as special counsel in the Hunter Biden investigation. Weiss was appointed by former President Trump and has been investigating the case since 2019. A Delaware federal judge gave Hunter Biden's counsel a deadline of noon today for an update on the status of the tax crimes case. A top Democrat has acknowledged that Hunter Biden, quote, did a lot of really unlawful and wrong things. Representative Jamie Raskin's statement comes after the DOJ appointed a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden. U.S. Attorney David Weiss has now been named special counsel. Raskin told ABC Weiss can make decisions about what where and when to charge Hunter. The plea agreement Weiss arranged with Hunter that would likely have kept him out of jail for tax and gun charges has apparently fallen through. Raskin says Weiss now wants to be certain that he has the authority to bring charges wherever he wants. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy questioned the appointment, writing on X, if Weiss negotiated the sweetheart deal that couldn't get approved, how can he be trusted as special counsel? What's more, House Oversight Chair James Comer said the move is an attempt by Biden's DOJ to stonewall congressional oversight of alleged corruption of the Biden family. 
It's roughly five months until Iowa's lead-off caucuses for the 2024 election. Republican presidential candidates campaigned at the must-stop Iowa State Fair in Des Moines over the weekend. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on fair's weekend events. Iowa kicks off the state-by-state -state Republican nominating contests on January 15th. Governor Kim Reynolds held fairside chats with GOP candidates on Saturday. The Iowa governor says she's remaining neutral in the 2024 race and wants everyone to have a fair shot. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was one of the presidential candidates to take part. We are in danger of being the first generation that turns over less opportunities to our kids than the opportunities we've inherited, and that is unacceptable. A group of protesters was ushered out during DeSantis's chat. Former President Trump declined to take part in the chat with Reynolds, but told reporters he has a good relationship with her and got her elected. The leading GOP 2024 candidate arrived with an entourage of Florida U.S. House members. He called the indictments against him election interference. Biden put it out because he can't win the fairway. He's way down in the polls. Despite Trump's ongoing legal battles, no candidate in modern history has gone on to lose the nomination with such a big lead in a contested primary. Other presidential candidates attending included former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Haley said during her fairside chat that Iowa's importance goes beyond it being the first caucus. Because right now, China's got his eyes set on Iowa. Why? China is our number one national security threat. They have been planning war with us for years. And that's not being dramatic. Look at the infiltration that China has done. The former UN ambassador spoke about the impact China has on U.S. agriculture, saying it steals seeds from the state's farmers in efforts to shore up food security. Everybody's joking now. The clock's run out. Time's up. Oh. GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is looking to engage younger voters in the 2024 election. We the people, how do we take this to the next generation? That's what this is about. Thank you for that. Ramaswamy shrugged off a question about the possibility of becoming vice president, but says he wants Trump as his advisor if he wins the White House. Senator and 2024 presidential hopeful Tim Scott is set to appear at the fair next weekend. The Iowa State Fair runs until Sunday, August 20th. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Two witnesses are set to testify before a grand jury in Trump's Georgia election case tomorrow. It's part of the investigation of alleged efforts to overturn election results in the state. Former Lieutenant Governor of Georgia Jeff Duncan confirmed Saturday that he was subpoenaed to testify. He says he looks forward to answering questions around the 2020 election. In his words, Republicans should never let honesty be mistaken for weakness, an Atlanta-based report base reporter also confirmed Saturday he's been asked to testify. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has indicated that potential indictments could be coming this week. The search continues for survivors on Maui in the aftermath of the horrific wildfires that obliterated the town of Lahaina. Members of the U.S. National Guard and the Army are assisting rescue efforts on the island. The death toll now stands at over 90 people and is expected to rise drastically as search parties have only covered around 3% of the affected area. Relatives of missing people have been urged to provide DNA to assist with the identification process. Some residents are now questioning if more could have been done to issue advance warnings before the fire hit the town, as sirens stationed around the island never sounded. Widespread power of communi and, uh, and communication outages hindered other forms of alerts. 
The cause of the fire is still unknown. An estimated 0.5% of the island burns each year, but none of those fires have burned as rapidly. Entities Cost MS has more updates on the Maui fires. Cadaver dogs continue the search for survivors. In the aftermath of what has become the deadliest fire in the U.S. in more than a century, the scale of the damage has now become clear. According to FEMA, the fire destroyed thousands of structures and burned more than 2,000 acres of land. It is estimated that rebuilding efforts will cost more than $5 billion. FEMA said on Sunday more than 250 of its employees had been deployed, including staffers who help those in shelters with financial aid. Many people are still frantically looking for relatives and friends. Absolutely. We cannot go in there yet, and we've been trying to locate my, my brother, Glenn, and my sister-in-law, Glee, and thank God, um, through this family assistance, uh, we're able to uh, have, get the world word that uh, they, they are safe. Hopefully I got all the resources that can help them right now. So. But I will uh, continue until everything's sure. I will behind all the... I will help everything I could. There. Little family needs in there because I work in Lahaina sites. In the short term, Hawaii Governor Josh Green warned the death toll would continue to increase as more victims were discovered. Residents of Lahaina and Kula have been advised not to drink any running water, including boiled water, and only take short showers in well-ventilated areas to avoid possible exposure to chemical vapors. Hawaii's Attorney General has opened an investigation into the island's alert system after complaints that not enough was done to warn residents of the disaster. Officials blamed communications network failures and winds of up to 80 miles per hour from an offshore hurricane, as well as a separate wildfire dozens of miles away. But no definitive cause for the fires has yet been determined. Footage released by the U.S. Defense Department shows members of the Hawaiian National Guard last week assisting with search and rescue efforts. U.S. Army soldiers also provided assistance in gathering donations of food and other supplies. The National Guard said it had activated over 130 troops to assist with the response. An additional 200 staff members are expected to arrive in the coming days. Ostermanes, NTD News. Efforts are already underway by the Salvation Army and the Red Cross to provide food and emergency shelters for those affected by the fires. Hawaiian authorities have encouraged those seeking to help to donate to the Maui Strong Fund, which is being organized by the Hawaii Community Foundation. If you wish to help, you can do so by visiting hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Strong. In another news, an investigation is underway after a massive explosion shook a Pittsburgh suburb over the weekend. Five people were killed, including an adolescent. Another person is being treated for critical injuries. Crews from 18 different local fire departments converged on the scene in Plum, Pennsylvania on Saturday morning. They found one house leveled completely and two neighboring houses on fire. It took crews from 18 different fire departments to put out the fire and search the rubble for survivors. 57 firefighters were treated on the scene for minor issues. A local power company representative said the gas system there was operating as designed. Gas has been shut off in the area for safety reasons. The explosion is under investigation by the county fire marshal's office along with borough and county law enforcement. Officials say it may be a long process. 
allegations of abuse and of power and First Amendment violations are being made after police raided a Kansas newspaper last week. Police effectively closed down the Marion County record, seizing phones, computers and their file server. Police served a warrant on the small town newspaper after suspecting its involvement in the identity theft of a local business owner. The warrant was signed by a local judge, but usually police are required to get a subpoena for materials taken from journalists. Local police chief Gideon Cody said that there are exceptions to subpoena requirement if there is reason to believe the journalist is involved in wrongdoing. He also said that when the truth becomes public, the justice system will be vindicated. The owner and publisher of the newspaper, Eric Myers, says he plans to sue the city of Marion and the individuals involved in the raid. The Marion County record says its 98-year-old co-owner collapsed on Saturday and died. The newspaper attributes Joan Myers' death to stress after what it calls the illegal raid on her home and the newspaper's office. NTD could not verify the state of Joan Myers' health before the warrant was served or her cause of death. And still to come, we bring you election analysis, a live discussion on how the appointment of a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden may affect his father's campaign. And officials in California recently announced the largest ever drug bust operation involving illegal marijuana cultivation. A local sheriff told us it's just a drop in the bucket. Welcome back. We turn now to updates surrounding the presidential election. We're bringing in a reporter from NTD's sister media. Jeff Lauderback, reporter for the Epic Times, joins us live. Jeff, it's great to have you on the show. How do you expect the appointment of a special counsel into Hunter Biden expect to you know, affect President Joe Biden's campaign? It'll be interesting because uh, obviously we've seen with um, Donald Trump, it's galvanized his base. Each time he gets indicted, it seems like he becomes more and more popular and his base gets more galvanized. President Biden, will that happen? We uh, we will see. I'm here right now in, uh, in Southern Ohio and Appalachia doing a story on how Appalachia will affect uh, the Ohio and West Virginia Senate races. Those ultimately will have an impact on the 2024 presidential election. Uh, so we'll see that we'll see if uh, President Biden galvanizes his base like it does uh, Donald Trump sort of anticipating a kind of a mirror effect of happening there. And in speaking of, you know, Ohio and other swing states, we've seen this list of swing states apparently being expanding since 2020. And what can you tell us about the landscape of these toss-up states? Well, it's interesting because uh, Ohio used to be a toss-up state, but uh, Donald Trump won decisively in 2016 and 2020. Um, Pennsylvania, I think still is. Uh, we're talking about border states to Ohio, but a lot of these uh, toss-up states, it'll be determined by, like Kentucky, um, I'm covering the gubernatorial race here this November, uh, Democrat Andy Bashir's the incumbent, Trump-backed Daniel Cameron, the attorney general is the uh, Republican challenger. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens in states like Kentucky, Mississippi, and Louisiana, which Trump won uh, what will happen with the gubernatorial races this year will have an impact on 2024. 
Yes, the gubernatorial sphere is very important, and also the state Supreme Court, like we saw in uh, Wisconsin there, a very neck-and-neck -neck state often. Janet Protasiewicz's victory over the conservative might be an indication, do you think, of how that state is going to lean this next year? Yeah, Wisconsin, you, you really never know what's going to happen in Wisconsin, and, uh, and just like uh, states like Pennsylvania and Virginia, it's just they used to be more certain, and now after, obviously, the election integrity issues in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, especially, uh, we don't know uh, how 2024 will shape out, but uh, that, that state Supreme Court outcome is definitely impactful. Yes, and you talk about election integrity. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, he said he's working with the State Department to ensure a fair and secure 2024 election. So what were some of the challenges the state faced in 2020, and how do you think 2024 will be different? Well, I think Pennsylvania was a lot like uh, Georgia. It had the, the computer issues, ballot harvesting. There's allegations of all that, so uh, questions about... Uh, it goes back to election integrity in general. Uh, there's varied opinions on it. People, voters, that'll impact voters. Do they, some people are skeptical, is my, does my vote count? So that's gonna be critical. I think the, it'll be interesting to see what happens in these elections in November, the gubernatorial elections. And here in Ohio, there's an abortion uh, amendment that if passes will enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. That, uh, that'll have a big impact on 2024, or at least the views of what will happen in 2024, as will how smoothly these elections go, will people be confident in 2024. And now Virginia has a slight blue lean, but we did see Governor Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, win in that state. So how do you think this is gonna affect the polls in 2024? Well, that's interesting, because uh, Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia, and he's a conservative. And mostly conservative Kentucky, Andy Bashir, he's voted, uh, I think Morning Consult did a poll last October. He was the most popular governor in the country. So those are states that you don't know what's going to happen because obviously Virginia being a Democrat-controlled state, but a Republican governor and Kentucky vice versa. So again, you just don't, uh, it, it'll, I think election, it goes back to election integrity, how confident are people? And uh, of course, what's going on with President Biden, is he healthy? Uh, does Gavin Newsom get in the race? I'm covering the RFK Jr. campaign. How uh, formidable will he be in the next year? I think all those factors will determine what happens in 2024. Yes, yeah, a lot of issues at play. Jeff Lauderback, reporter for the Epic Times, thank you so much for your analysis. Thank you. And over to California, state officials recently announced the largest ever drug bust operation involving illegal marijuana. But the local sheriff says it's less than 1% on the black market in his county. Entities Jack Bradley brings us the details. Good morning, Evelyn. Nearly $70 million worth of illegally grown marijuana was eradicated and a dozen firearms were seized in Siskiyou County up in Northern California. The governor's office just announced the operation as the largest ever of its kind. But the county sheriff, Jeremiah LaRue, said even this hardly puts a dent in the problem. It's only just a little dot, I guess, in the, uh, in the big picture. I mean, we probably have, you know, anywhere between 2,000 to 2,500 different locations in our county that has uh, cannabis uh, growing illegally. 
And so this 68.5 million, uh, it seems like a lot, but honestly, it's, it's probably less than 1% of what we're seeing uh, in Siskiyou County. The bus targeted illegal growers that harm the environment and public. These grows use illegal pesticides and herbicides that are toxic to the environment and the user. But why is the black market thriving when recreational use is legal? Sheriff LaRue says that's because many legal marijuana dispensaries rely on the product from these illegal grows, as it's much cheaper to buy. We know for a fact uh, that the, the marijuana is making its way into dispensaries. So if you can imagine what that means is that when people go to a dispensary to purchase cannabis and they want to you know, ensure that it is safe and that they uh, are free of pesticides, as they should be, Right now, there's no way to guarantee that. And I think that should be a strong warning for people that, that do go and, and, and purchase cannabis, uh, that they might actually be uh, making um, you know, an unhealthy choice. And I think that the state needs to do a better job of ensuring that if, if things are gonna be legal, that they need to be done appropriately and that people won't be uh, you know, ingesting pesticides that could potentially you know, lead to cancer or more significant uh, conditions. Sheriff LaRue says another reason for the booming black market cannabis industry is that the penalties for breaking the state's marijuana laws are just a fine, no matter the scale of the violation. Right now, 10,000 plants is the same violation as eight. And that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, I mean, people are going to excess because there's no penalty. And I think one thing that I think most people, most Americans would probably understand and agree with is that without laws, people will will violate things, right? They, some people need that structure. Uh, you know, we can't rely on, on people's morals. Uh, you need to have some stuff on the books that you can really, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of prosecute people for. And the hope is not to prosecute everyone, but it, if you have a law that's, that, you know, you might get some jail time out of, or maybe being sent to prison for environmental damage, then maybe people will stop doing it, or maybe they'll be deterred. These illegal cannabis grows continue to plague Siskiyou and its neighboring counties. LaRue says he appreciates the state's cannabis task force's recent crackdown, but it's gonna take a lot more to solve the problem. Evelyn, back to you. The NAH got millions in royalties from China and Russia. We spoke to an expert to hear what concerns around that are. Taiwan's vice president made a brief stop in the U.S., saying the island won't back down to totalitarian threats, but his act has endangered, angered Beijing. Welcome back. The NIH got $325 million in royalties from Chinese and Russian entities. Among the recipients were former NIH Director Dr. Francis Collins and Dr. Anthony Fauci and thousands of others. And for some context, the NIH allows inventors to receive up to $150,000 a year from royalties, and OpenTheBooks.com did not reveal how much money each of them received. I spoke to Anders Kaur. He's a publisher of the, for, of the journal for Political Risk and the principal at Core Analytics. He shared why there is a concern. I think it comes from a number of different um, companies, including U.S. companies. Um, but it is a concern that the NIH hasn't been more transparent uh, in the past about 
where it's getting its money um, in terms of royalties, who that money goes to, who it get, you know, companies it comes from, and whether there are any conflicts of interest. For example, a director who uh, is overseeing at maybe a very high level, but nevertheless overseeing um, research that is being done by an entity, for example, a pharmaceutical company that is also paying uh, royalties to that director directly and also to his organization, the NIH. So yes, there's a very there's a big concern about lack of transparency at the NIH, and and the reporting is now coming uh, out that that's the case. I see. Now we're going to go into that a little bit later, but so because let's let's um, to help your, for context, right? So because technically royalty payments are routine payments between licensee and licensor, right? So can you go in a bit more detail, like sum up what's the difference here? Well, I would argue that no payment is routine. I think any payment is uh, a serious issue that needs to be looked at, especially if it's coming from a country like China or Russia that's an adversary nation. Um, some of these payments are allegedly or reportedly from uh, companies, for example, in Russia that have been involved in uh, bioweapons research. So I think that might be the exception to the rule, but still, uh, it is a concern. It's a concern that the NIH hasn't been more, more transparent about it. The uh, Commerce and Energy Committee at the U.S. House has for three months been asking NIH to provide more information, for example, about uh, the China COVID issue, and they haven't, the origin issue, they haven't uh, been forthcoming. So now uh, the Commerce Committee is being forced to basically threaten to require, uh, probably through a subpoena or some such, um, the mm. NIH to provide those documents. We saw that 58 payments allegedly, well, they, it seems like they went to Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci. So why are clo people closely inspecting that, do you think? What could their role, um, how could their role be significant in this? Individual scientists at NIH um, have a maximum of $150,000 a year in terms of their outside royalty payments. Um, so this was, would be just a fraction of their uh, normal income. Um, they, uh, Fauci, for example, made over $400,000 a year um, at one point. So it is a fraction. However, it is also concerning because it's the part of the, their income that is variable and that could vary um, depending on whether or not uh, the Chinese Communist Party likes what they're saying, likes what they're doing. So I think we really shouldn't have uh, China or Russia uh, funding our taxpayer-funded directors of the NIH. Um, I think there have been similar issues with some other agencies, maybe the CDC. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it is a conflict of interest. Um, it's not just an apparent conflict of interest. Um, they've said that they don't have research uh, undergoing by a director, say, that is directly on that topic um, where they're getting funded by the outside royalties. However, um, they could be funded by an entity that is doing research on something they're doing, I believe. They, they haven't been clear 
in the way they are replying. So they, they've, it's been said that some of the replies from NIH is, are misleading. Um, the co Congress is saying that, so. Mm, interesting. Well, that and uh, who received what remains to be seen, but that's definitely good, um, some good insights to have right now. Thank you, Anders Core. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. A separatist and a troublemaker, that's what Beijing called Taiwan's Vice President William Lai over his short stay in the U.S. Lai arrived in New York on Saturday. He said Taiwan won't be scared or cower in the face of authoritarian threats. Lai was en route to Paraguay to attend the country's presidential inauguration. Paraguay is one of the only 13 countries that maintain formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Lai is a frontrunner in Taiwan's January presidential elections. Taiwanese officials say China will likely launch military exercises near Taiwan this week, using Lai's stopover as a pretext to intimidate voters and make them, quote, fear war. In response to Beijing's anger, both Taipei and Washington called Lai's state routine and no cause for China to take provocative actions. Taiwan said the Chinese Communist Party was the real troublemaker, pointing to its standoff this month with the Philippines and its continued military harassment of Taiwan. Beijing claims Taiwan as its own territory and has threatened to take it by force. That's despite never having ruled the island. And now, getting to some short headlines from around the world. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has ordered an increase in missile production to be ready for war. This after the U.S. and South Korea announced they will hold their largest ever military drill later this month. The annual summer exercises will mobilize tens of thousands of troops from both sides and some member states of the U.N. command. Niger's military junta says it will prosecute ousted President Mohamed Bazoum for high treason. If found guilty, he could face the death penalty. The junta says West African politicians have attempted to derail a peaceful solution to the crisis in order to justify a military intervention. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has dismissed all military recruitment officers in the country. The move comes after a series of high-profile corruption cases caught headlines. Zelensky says abuses range from illegal enrichment to transporting draft-eligible men across the border despite a wartime ban on leaving the country. Argentine voters punished the country's two main political forces in a primary election yesterday. They pushed a libertarian outsider candidate into first place in a huge shakeup in the race towards presidential elections in October. Javier Millet, an economist and admirer of former President Trump, is a real contender for the presidency. And on that news with President Zelensky, earlier this year, he even fired a lot of officials over the procurement of wartime supplies. Right, and that caused Ukraine Deputy Defense Minister to resign. They've been really busy rooting out a lot of corruption over there. That's right. Um, and coming up, investing is important for retirement, college tuition, or for a house. NTD spoke to experts for tips on investing for beginners. And don't be stuck with a cold on vacation. We speak to a medical professional on why summer colds are a thing and get some natural remedies after the break. It's good to have you back with us. Are public libraries encouraged to focus on sexuality and race? 
NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with New Hampshire State Representative Arlene Quaratiello about what she calls the Marxist agenda of national organizations influencing public libraries. One such organization is the nonprofit Collaborative Summer Library Program. Its homepage says, CSLP firmly stands against all racist practices, violence, and continued oppression of our African-American community. We support those protesting against systemic racism and government corruption. Coratiello says she was surprised by the content of one of the group's newsletters. There was a training program described in one of the newsletters providing instruction in the process of becoming a disruptor in the context of being an LGBTQ disruptor. Another training hosted by the Collaborative Summer Library program covered inclusive best practices using pronouns. The Library Journal is another organization the New Hampshire representative feels is influencing libraries with its agenda. Quaratiel says she recently viewed its online professional development program called How to Build and Defend Inclusive Collections. I always heard Martin Luther King saying, uh, you should be judged by the content of your character, not the color of your skin. Yet Quaratiello says race and other factors played a large role in which books to choose. It's like there was some sort of checkbox and they had to reach a quota. And instead of judging books by the content of the book itself. Cornell University Collection Development librarian Carson Williams was one of the speakers in the program. He said, Fostering an inclusive, safe, queer library environment is the most important thing we can do. And that, and that as staff members, if we do this, we will be so loved and appreciated. All I'm asking for is neutrality. Public libraries should be neutral, and they're not. Coratiello also mentions the American Library Association. The Montana State Library Commission voted this month to withdraw from the association, saying, our oath of office and resulting duty to the Constitution forbids association with an organization led by a Marxist. American Library Association President Emily Drabinsky wrote on Twitter after being elected that she just can't believe that a Marxist lesbian who believes that collective power is possible to build and can be wielded for a better world is president-elect of ALA. Quartiello says the mentioned organizations have succeeded in implementing what she calls a woke agenda from the top down. To combat this, she advises people to work from the bottom up and get involved with local elections, specifically for library trustees, which she says have even more power than the library director in some states. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD reached out to the several national organizations mentioned in the story. We asked for a response to accusations they are inappropriately focusing on sexuality and race. We did not hear back. From social issues to finance, investing is important for retirement, college tuition, or for a house. But starting to invest can be intimidating. To take your hard-earned money and to put it somewhere else where it's at risk of being lost is not for the faint of heart. That's right. So here is a story on investing for beginners. Entity's Colin Fredrickson has more. Investing your money can ensure you have enough for retirement, for college tuition, or for buying a house. It could potentially be the difference between living paycheck to paycheck and becoming a millionaire. But it can also intimidate people who've never done it before. Investing money means you're putting your money into things like stocks, bonds, and real estate. If the value of these things goes up over time, you have, in a sense, made money. But if it goes down, you've lost money. 
For beginners, experts suggest playing it safe. Avoid individual stocks that have earnings announcements, you know, four times a year. Uh, a calamity happens in there. Don Kaufman is the co-founder of Theotrade, a financial education firm. He advises putting money into funds that track many companies. So you're investing in many companies at once instead of just one. This spreads out the risk. If some of them do poorly, you won't lose that much money. If you put too much money into just one firm, it would be a disaster if that firm suddenly does very poorly. The market does frequently go down, but in the big picture, it mostly moves up. Risk only what you're comfortable with, or what I actually term find kind of a warm and fuzzy spot of risk. And you absolutely unequivocally have to stick to that. No one ever actually turns around and says like, look, my risk management was just paramount. It was beautiful. You know, in this losing trade, I only lost X amount. Now I'm going to tell you, in the long run, that's what matters. Kaufman believes too many people focus on profits. But he says profitability takes care of itself and that risk management is paramount. Warren Buffett once said, the first rule of an investment is don't lose money. And the second rule of an investment is don't forget the first rule. And finally, experts recommend education. Learn more about finance before throwing your money out there. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Those first steps to investing can be difficult to take, but it may pay off. Yeah, and it probably gets easier once you've made the first step, right? Yeah, you a little experience. It. Yeah, exactly. All right, going into break now. Coming up, don't be stuck with a cold on vacation. We speak to a medical professional on why summer colds are a thing and get some natural remedies. And we take a look at a woman reviving a long lost tradition. She's learned an ancient craft from her mentor and is now hoping to find someone who shares the same passion. Stay tuned for that story. Good to have you back. Always wondered how people are catching colds when it's warm. I definitely had one this season. It, it does sound counterintuitive, but hopefully it wasn't on your vacation. It wasn't, luckily, but you have a good point because apparently people are especially susceptible when they're traveling because of exposure. People are also taking less precautions and the AC doesn't help either, right? So traditional Chinese medicine, though, brings a different perspective that I wanted to hear about. And I spoke to a practitioner of Chinese medicine to learn more. Joining me now to explore some natural cold remedies is Dr. Jingduan Yang. Besides being a psychiatrist, he also specializes in integrative and traditional Chinese medicine. It's good to have you back. Now let's first explore the cause of a summer cold. According to traditional Chinese medicine, of course, what causes the summer cold season? From Chinese medicine perspective, body has, uh, uh, during the summertime, they're much more uh, open to, uh, you know, to get rid of uh, excessive heat by, uh, you know, perspiration. And um, and that time also it's make it vulnerable to receive cold energy that get into the body. For example, uh, a strong, you know, you come from outside, you come inside and there's a lot of a cold air conditioned rooms and cold, you know, temperature that and also people tends to do you know swimming and stay in the cold water for a long time and during the summertime so those a change of temperature quickly can also make people vulnerable mm -hmm. um, to develop colds in the summertime and um, so hydration is another issue summertimes uh, people can um, 
can get dehydrated. When you are dehydrated, uh, you are vulnerable, uh, uh, compromised to your immune system. But most importantly is the internal reasons, the people's own emotional status. Because if you are very stressed, that's compromised your immune system. People say, well, summer is a vacation time. People can be relaxed and that's all good. But also when people travel and when weather is too hot and when <laughs> family members get together, sometimes it's not necessarily relaxing. Help me understand more about the differences between winter cold season and summer cold season. How specifically are they different for our body and how in response to that how should we treat our bodies during those times so chinese medicine talks all about energy so they don't talk about virus or bacteria okay they talk about energy so there's the five energies can affect you and the cold and the heat the dampness the dryness and the wind so so those five energies affects you can all can all create some form of cold quote unquote symptoms like headaches, fevers, uh, congestions, cough, heaviness, and you know um, fatigue and sleepiness and all that symptoms and even you know pain or headaches. Generally speaking, the summer season you have a more heat and dampness, particularly during the long summer time, which is August, is a very hot and humid. And the winter is can be very cold and dry, right? So those can make them different. So you have a different cold caused by different form of energies, but they all need a one energy to bring them into your body, which is the wind energy. So normally they come with the wind. So we always want the people, no matter it's a summer or it's a cold, stay away from where area where there's a lot of winds mm. come because they can bring heat to you, they can bring dampness to you, they can bring dryness to you, they can bring coldness to you. Whatever they bring in, that's how they're going to interact with your body. As far as how you manifest the symptom-wise, depends your internal energy is like. Wow a lot of fascinating knowledge that we're allowed to tap into here. Thank you so much for those points and those knowledge, uh, sharing this knowledge. Dr. Jingnuan Yang, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That really was a fascinating interview, and I really appreciate the new perspective on Western on medicine, because you know in the West, we always think about viruses and vitamin C to stave off colds and stuff like that, but learning how dampness can affect us is really important to stay prepared. Right, whereas I grew up in a way where my, my parents would always tell me about the wind, and, and I think he even provided some insight into because it's the same theory, right? The AC can probably harm you a little bit in the summer going from the warm to the cold, and I think with that, it really provided a different perspective and explanation for why that is, because your pores are more open, so you're more susceptible. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, watch out for those quick changes in temperature. And coming up, we take a look at a woman who's revived a long-lost tradition, and now she's looking to find someone who shares the same passion. Stay tuned for that in just a moment.
Welcome back. And you know, Evelyn, ahead of this next story about the coppersmith that I'm really looking forward to, I just got this antique sofa and it is just so cool. It has all this ornate woodwork on it. It's really great. Oh, wow. You should show me a picture sometime. Mm -hmm. Well, traditional methods have become increasingly rare, though, so it's nice when some stick to the old ways of doing things. One Wisconsin woman has done exactly that after learning an ancient craft from her mentor. Let's take a look. Sarah Dahman from Wisconsin is reviving a rare and long-lost tradition. She's the only known female coppersmith building copper cookware in the United States. Sarah fell into the profession, which has become her passion purely by chance. I actually fell into coppersmithing as a trade. Very uh, kind of serendipitous. It was... Um, me researching for historical fiction novels that take place in pioneer America time period, the 1800s. And I wanted to know what the women especially were cooking in, um, what they would have had made for them in their kitchens. And, um, and I researched, I found an old smith near me who was doing this the old-fashioned way, using tools and, and procedures from the 17 and 1800s. And he let me come and observe him, and then I kind of kept going back and then starting to do it myself. She would visit the shop two to three times a week, learning the ins and outs of traditional copper cookware. She soon found herself making copper cookware in line with her fascination for 19th century pioneer-era living. Sarah says it's all down to the kindness and guidance of her mentor. Bob, Bob is um, one of the smartest men I've ever met. Um, he's a grandfather to my children at this stage. Um, but he, um, he's one of those people who, who never went to college and everything he knows he's learned by doing. And he, uh, he can build a, a motor from nothing. He can he can repair anything. And so he had fallen into this trade just by looking at old vintage uh, lanterns and and decided, oh, I can make that. I can figure out how to make that. And he's built this trade. The materials she uses are all American made, something Sarah sees as highly important. The best thing about being a coppersmith, she says, is being able to build something that will last for centuries. When I was younger, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And now, in a way, I get to build things that 10,000 years from now will show up in an archaeological dig because <laughs> copper doesn't rust, you know. So somewhere, someday, someone's going to find something I built and look back and be like, wow, this survived so long. Her advice for anyone starting as an entrepreneur is to say yes to trying as many new things and meeting as many new people as you can. Sarah says she hopes in the future she will find someone who shares an equal passion for coppersmithing and wants to invest their time to learn the trade. There is something so satisfying, right? Making things with your hand like that, being so practical and really just creating something from scratch. Yes, and something so useful. I mean, we think about today's world, you know, we have these Teflon pans, you know, with the nonstick, and it's really convenient, you know, for flipping an egg, but if it gets scratched, then you can't use it. But these things, they stand the test of time. They last for a long time. Yeah. All right, that's all for today. You can write us at, at, as usual at goodmorning at ntd.com. That's it for today. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.